percentage was spiritual and what percent was secular. And I asked him to write it down. I won't make you do this tonight. Uh, and then I'll typically go around and ask people what they wrote down, right? And I get all sorts of answers. The highest I've ever gotten, one young lady said one time, uh, I gave myself 80% spiritual yesterday because I did my Bible study in the dorm last night. Then I'll typically play them or, or read to them uh, a passage that Paul wrote. Let me show you what that was. He also tells the Corinthians, whether you eat or drink, do everything to the glory of God. Now, how do you justify the fact you put half of what I did yesterday was spiritual and half of what I did yesterday was, was uh, secular, when as believers, everything you should do should be to glorify God? One of the problems the Christian church has kind of wandered into over the last 150 years is we think some of the things we do are spiritual and some of the things we do are secular. Interesting enough, if you look at the Hebrew language, particularly in the Old Testament, there's not a word for spiritual in that context. What, were they just not spiritual people? No, they clearly understood that there was no need to differentiate because everything they did was spiritual. And we likewise should do that. It's interesting, I, I um, talk a lot about the spiritual-secular divide, and when I was in college, this is what it looked like, right? If you wanted to really be a spiritual person, you became a pastor or a missionary. Everything else was kind of not spiritual. Now, this is not what it looks like for you guys. Let me show what it looks like for you guys now. It looks more like this. There, there's certain kind of cool jobs, right? Save the world type jobs, whether it's a human rights lawyer or international development or, or social entrepreneur, right? And then on the other side, there are kind of the, quote, secular jobs, right? You know, they're kind of boring, right? Uh, a suburban teacher, an engineer, store clerk. I mean, make a list, right? So it's interesting what's missing from this. Pastor and missionary aren't even on it anymore, right? So the reality is that whatever work you do, if it's what God's called you to do, is important. It is, in fact, very important. In fact, I would argue it's just as important as what anyone else is doing, right? It's interesting this was an idea that I would suggest to you is one of the cornerstones of the Protestant Reformation. In fact, when Martin Luther says the work of the milkmaid was just as important to God as the work of the priest, that was heresy in his day. It's still heresy in a lot of churches today. And the reformers really understood that, and this whole idea of the importance of our work was one of the cornerstones of the Reformation. And yet, 500 years later, we've wandered so far away from it that most churches today don't really understand faith and work at all. Now, one of the things that I often talk about is, is there's a great book by Oz Guinness called The Call. And he wrote it almost 20 years ago, and Oz has become a friend of mine. He lives in, in Northern Virginia, close to us, and he's done some stuff for us. And he talks about in that book, as a Christian, our primary calling is to become disciples of Christ. But then he goes on to say, out of that primary calling flow four secondary callings. So our call to be a disciple of Christ, that's to be, right? And he says these other four callings are what we do. This is where we do our work, paid and unpaid, right? And it really falls out in these four areas. Our call to the church, our call to family, our call to community, and our call to vocation. Now some people, like a pastor or some guy that's in, full, uh, that's in vocational ministry, at a campus ministry, something like that, his call to the church overlaps his call to vocation, right? The stay-at-home mom, her call 
to family overlaps her call to vocation. But for most of us, for most of the seasons of our lives, it'll fall out into these four separate buckets. So what we like to say is, is all of this work, paid and unpaid, is really what, what the New Testament calls stewardship. Now, I want to stop right here and talk about, uh, about something and show you a quick video. One of the things that we need to understand is the why behind our work. I'm telling you, your work's important to God. Your first question should be, why is that true? Because, see, once we understand the why, the how, the, the what, the who, all that will work out. It's the why that drives us over a long period of time. So I want to show you a quick video that does a better job explaining the importance of why than I can. So what I want to do is answer the why your work is important. So hang with me. We'll get there, okay? Um, let's go back to what I said. So we've got these four buckets where we're doing our work, right? And together, the Bible calls that type of work, paid or unpaid, all these things we do in these four of them, it calls it stewardship. But we have a problem with the word stewardship. I saw a recent poll. They asked Christians, what does stewardship mean? 80% of them said it means giving money to the church. No, that's not what it means. Stewardship is 100% giving 100% of your time, talent, and treasure to what God is doing in the world. That's the biblical meaning of stewardship. We need to understand that. Let me give you a, a quick definition of stewardship. Um, I often hear people say it's the faithful and effective management of property or resources belonging to another. I think that's good as far as it goes, but you know what that sounds like to me? It sounds like house sitting, right? Has anybody ever heard of house set? Do you know what that is? Do you even do that anymore? Okay, a few of you. So like, for those that don't know, you know, somebody has a lot nicer house than you do, goes on vacation, they want somebody to stay in their house, and you volunteer to do it, right? Now when you do that, you don't go in and build a new wing onto their house while they're gone, right? When I housed it, all I did was try not to break anything, right? And see, so I don't think that's a good understanding of stewardship. I think you have to add one more piece to this to make it really right. Let me add this and read it to you. The faithful and effective management of property or resources belonging to another in order to achieve the owner's original objectives, Okay. So, so that, you know, if we're going to say that's going to be our definition of stewardship and we're going to be a steward for God, the next question you've got to ask yourself is what was the owner's original objective? Why did he make all this? Why did he make me and you? Why did he make this incredible world we live in, right? And the Bible is very clear about the answer. It, you find it all through the Psalms. You find it all through the Old Testament into the New Testament. Um, uh, Psalm 19 says that heaven declares the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Uh, we even read in the book of Revelation, it says, O oh Lord, um, are you, you, you're worthy to receive glory and honor and power. For you have created all things, and for your pleasure they all were created. God made all this that he might be glorified. Okay? So if you believe that, what's the next step? When is God most glorified? Well, if we go back to the creation story, if you'll remember on the fourth day, he says it's good. On the fifth day, he says it's good. On the sixth day, when he finishes, what does he say? It's very good, right? Why does he say it's very good? Because he's finished. He looks out at the creation. Everything's done. It works exactly as he intended. He's built a creation that's not independent. It's not dependent. It's interdependent. It works together to do what? Glorify him. So God's most glorified when his creation works like it's supposed to work.
Now, you take it to the next step, you have to ask yourself then, what was God's desire for his creation? And the scriptures are very clear about that as well. His desire for his creation was for it to flourish. The more it flourishes, the more he's glorified because it's working like it was designed to work. Um, There's a scholar who's done some work for us named Jonathan Pennington. He writes this, All human behavior, when analyzed deeply enough, will be found to be motivated by the desire for life and flourishing, both individually and corporately. At the core of who we all are, there's this desire for flourishing because it's the way God designed his creation. Now, there's a word in the Old Testament that's often used excuse me, <clears throat> to describe flourishing. And you know what this word is. It's the word shalom, okay? Now, typically, we translate the word shalom as the word peace. But that's far too weak a translation. It means so much more than just an absence of fighting or war. Let me give you the best description of shalom I've come across. Shalom is the webbing together of God, humans, and all creation, and justice, fulfillment, and delight. Shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness and delight, a rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts fruitfully employed. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. The full flourishing of human life in all respects, just as God intended from the very beginning. So if we talk about stewardship, then we have to define stewardship as maximizing God's blessing for his glory. That's what stewardship is really all about. See, God entrusted us with certain resources, gifts, and abilities. It's our responsibility to live by that trust, by managing these things well, according to God's design and his desire. He designed the world a certain way. He designed a world that's supposed to be flourishing, that, that it's full of shalom. And he also designed, he also has a desire for us to go out and create more shalom, to bring him out more flourishing to his creation. And the more we do that, the more he's glorified. Now, interestingly enough, J.R.R. Tolkien, the guy who wrote Lord of the Rings, called human beings sub-creators. He said, God creates something out of nothing. We can't do that, but we can create something out of the stuff that God has given us. And I would argue that's exactly what we're supposed to do. It's interesting, if you go back to Genesis, ah, sorry about that. What what I was going to say before God interrupted me um, was that God comes to Adam and Eve on the sixth day of creation, when the world is new, it says, let me tell you why you were created. Let me tell you what I made you to do. Let me tell you what your purpose is here. And I would argue by extension, this is all of our purpose. This is, this is what we're called to do, written large. He says, I want you to do two things. I want you to fill the earth with my images, and I want you to subdue the earth. Now, the word subdue there is the Hebrew word kabosh, and it literally means to make the world an incredible place for human beings to flourish. That was our job description from the very beginning, right? Um, Nancy Piercy, in her book, Total Truth, has this quote about this passage. She says this, The first phrase, be fruitful and multiply, means to develop the social world, build families, churches, schools, cities, governments, laws. The second phrase, subdue the earth, means to harness the natural world, plant crops, build bridges, design computers, 
composed music. This passage is sometimes called the cultural mandate because it tells us that our original purpose was to create culture, build civilizations, nothing less. You see, the Garden of Eden was finished. It was perfect, but it wasn't finished. If Adam and Eve had never sinned, would they have just stayed in the garden forever? No, they would have gone out into the world and they would have filled it with God's images and they would have subdued it. They would have made it an incredible place for human beings to flourish. The problem is in the church today, we only do half of this equation. See, we, we, we're, we're pretty good about talking about filling the earth with God's and we have to say redeemed images now because of the fall, right? So we're pretty good at filling the earth with God's redeemed images and talking about that. that that's evangelism, that's discipleship. But we ignore the other half of the equation. Here's the problem. If you hear nothing else I, hear, I say today, I want you to hear this. The gospel of Jesus Christ is a redemptive call to return to a lost and forfeited calling, a purpose. And this is the purpose, to subdue and fill the earth. That's what we're called to go do. That's why we're here. See, our salvation is not a bus ticket to heaven. Our salvation, I mean, God saves people. He brings them from darkness into the light. He brings them from death to life to do something in the here and now. Your salvation is not just a bus ticket to heaven. You can't just take your bus ticket, sit and play video games till the bus gets here. It's not how it works. You know, he saved you to do something very important, and that thing he saved you to do is to fill the earth with his redeemed images and go subdue the earth. You see, stewardship implies an expectation of human achievement. That's very, very important. In fact, I think I can make a strong argument if you go back and look at the history of Western civilization. Forget the last 150 years where's the church we've kind of screwed up, right? But if you look at the rest of the history of Western civilization, almost every good thing that's been done, whether it was building universities, whether it was teaching kids to read, whether it was uh, hospitals, whether it was um, uh, um, great art, great music, great inventions, uh, abolishing slavery, women's rights, all those things were done by believers who understood the call on their life was to take the um, talents that God had given them, use them in the opportunities that were presented to go out and, and make more shalom, bring about flourishing to the communities in which they served. We've got to get back to that. That's what we're supposed to do. See, on one hand, filling the earth with God's redeemed images, that's about a change of individuals' hearts. Subduing the earth is about changing the world, about impacting culture, about making the world a better place for all of us to live in, even people who will never voluntarily bow a knee to Jesus Christ. It's about serving his whole creation. That's what we're here to do. That's the peace that we've got to regain if we really want to make a difference. See, here's the problem. What's the church known for today? It's known for what we're against, not for all the cool things that we're doing. We've got to change that. And your generation will be the one I think can change it. Listen, my generation, for years we found out what's our big fear? We're afraid of public speaking. You know, it shows you how shallow the baby boomers are, right? It's all about us. Your generation, you know what you're afraid of? There have been a bunch of studies done on this. You're afraid of leading an insignificant life. If you want purpose, if you want your life to have meaning, You've got to get a hold of this. This is where it's at. This is what happens. Now, a couple quick things. One thing, there's a difference between flourishing 
biblical flourishing and cultural flourishing. Flourishing is a very uh, common word. It's been used a lot. Um, I use the word shalom a lot because it's kind of like biblical flourishing, but I use flourishing some too. But here's the difference. And I can take you back to a story, another story in Genesis. A group of guys get together and say, let's build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens, right? And here comes the kicker, so that we might make a name for ourselves. I live in Washington, D.C. A lot of people come there, Christians and non-Christians, to make a name for themselves. Let me tell you, biblical flourishing is not about making a name for yourself. Biblical flourishing is about doing things that bring glory to God, serve the common good, and further God's kingdom in this place in this time. That's how you tell the difference, right? There's nothing wrong with building a city. There's nothing wrong with building a city with a tower reaching to the heavens. It's all about your motivation. Why are you doing it? So you need to always be checking yourself. Why am I doing this? What's my motivation? Now, Flourishing stewardship tied at the hip. Very important to understand that flourishing stewardship work together. Here's another thing. You cannot go out and flourish by yourself. You cannot go out and be a good steward by yourself. God made us a, 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 a creation that's interdependent. You can only flourish in community. Let me tell you that again. You can only flourish in, God, in community. God doesn't want any more spiritual lone rangers. He's got enough of those. He wants people that come together in community, working together to glorify God, serve the common good, further his kingdom. One more piece of the puzzle, and then I'll wrap this up with one last story. There's something we talk about a lot called the four-chapter gospel. Simply, creation, fall, redemption, restoration. It's a way of looking at the bigger story of God's redemptive history in a way, we can use it as a mental model so that as we study the little bits and pieces of the Bible, we know how it fits in. And we also know how our story fits into his story. And that's very important. So the first chapter, creation, is about the way things were. The second chapter, fall, is about the way things are. The third chapter, redemption, shows the way things could be. And the last chapter, restoration, shows the way things are going to be. Here's the problem. In the last 150 years, we've got so locked into this spiritual, secular divide, and it's caused by the fact that we've taken this four-chapter gospel and truncated it to two chapters. See, all we talk about in church today is the fall and redemption. So the four-chapter gospel, I mean, the two-chapter gospel is all about us. Dallas Willard says we've made the gospel into the gospel of sin management. Without the first chapter, we don't know why we were created we don't know what we were made to do. Without the last chapter, we're not sure where we're going to end up. Both of those are important. We need to bring this fullness of the four-chapter gospel back. See, the reality is everyone in this room is going to be influenced by some grand story. The only question is what grand story is going to influence your life? Is it the one the culture is selling or is it the one out of the Bible? One's true, the other not so much, right? One will show you where to find true significance, importance in your life. The other will not. It's a dead end. So let me close with one last story. We believe that uh, Jesus healed the blind man, right? I, I'm a good Presbyterian. You don't have to say amen. Just nod your head. That's all I need. That's all I Okay. Okay. Uh, we believe he, he healed the, the blind man. We believe he fed the 5,000. Did Jesus heal everyone in Israel when he was alive? No. 
Did he feed everyone that was hungry in Israel when he was there? No, he did not. Could he have? Of course he could have. He was the son of God. He could have done anything he wanted to do. Then the question you should ask yourselves, why didn't he? Now, I have a theologian on my staff. He's got a PhD in theology and all that good stuff. And if we asked him that question, he would tell us, well, Jesus was demonstrating his power and authority as the son of God on earth, and, and all that's true. But I think there's another reason that really ties back to what we've talked about for the last 25 minutes. And it's simply this. When Jesus healed the blind man, well, let me, let me back up. What chapter of the fourth chapter gospel was Jesus in? Same one we're in, the third chapter. What did I tell you the third chapter was? It's redemption. What's the third chapter about? About showing people the way things could be. When Jesus heals the blind man, he's showing them there could be a time when no one's blind. When he feeds the 5,000, he's showing them there could be a time when no one's hungry. Right? And we, as his disciples, are to go and do likewise. We're to go out into the world and do our work in a way that gives people a glimpse of the way things are supposed to be. Do things that bring about flourishing to the communities that we serve. Now, what is your vocational calling today? Most of you, I assume, are students. That's your vocational calling. So how do you go be a student and bring about flourishing? How do you go back to your family and be a family member and bring flourishing, shalom, to your family? How do you go out in your community and do things with your friends that bring shalom to your community? How do you go out in your church and work in your church to do things that bring shalom? That's the question you need to ask yourselves. So I'm going to close with one last uh, quick video that kind of wraps all this stuff up. Okay, can you hear me? Everything good? Okay. So the first lecture we did, we really looked at more of the theory behind work. What I want to do in this next lecture is drill down a little bit, okay? One of the things that I did, I wrote this little book called How Did Should We Work uh, a number of years ago, and we published it when we started the Institute. And I said there were basically five things as I kind of worked through some of this on my own in the, uh, the last century, as it were, to understand the whole idea of faith and work. And one of those is what I want to talk about in, in the next four, tw 25, 30 minutes. And it's the idea of the biblical meaning of success. You see, I had been in the church all my life and never had really been explained how as a business guy, how do I measure success? How do I think about success? Listen, I've been in... In, in, in a church and heard sermons on, you know, you just need to learn how to be content, right? So I would see the pastor on my way out the door. I said, Pastor, so does that mean tomorrow when I go to work, I don't really work hard to try to win that new proposal so I can expand my company and hire more people? And, and he would go, oh, no, that's not what I meant. I said, but that's what you said, right? And it, and it was just this total disconnect about success. So let me start off by giving you some bad news, okay? The bad news is you've been lied to. You've been lied to by your teachers. You've been lied to by the culture, by the media. You've probably even been lied to by your kindergarten teacher. They've told you two great lies that have incredibly damaged the way that you're going to look at success in the future, particularly when you leave this institution and go out into the world and begin to work. The first great lie... You can be anything you want to be. Have you heard that? <laughs> Hate to break it to you, but that's not true. Listen, I was six foot four, uh, 240 pounds, uh, in the best shape of my wife, life, 34 inch waist. I still have pictures I pull out and show my wife occasionally to, to confirm to her that I really was that good a shape at one time in my life. 
thought I wanted to be a tight end in the NFL. Now, in the NFL, that was the size of tight ends. So I went up to the University of Florida, not to get a good education, but to play football. And I got up there, walked on, and quickly realized I was about 12th on the depth chart of tight end. I mean, I was quick, but they were fast. Not only was I not going to be in the NFL, I didn't even make the team at Florida. Right? You can't be whatever you want to be. That's the first great lie. Second great lie is probably even worse than the first. And it's that you can be the best in the world. These two great lies have set people like you up for failure for the last 20 years. Now, don't believe me. Let me, let me show you a quote out of one of the best-selling books. This guy's a very famous business author. He writes a book a year. I don't know how he does it. Sells tons of books. This particular one came out a number of years ago. It was four weeks on the New York Times bestseller list. They sold 100,000 books in the first month. You know, my little book, I'm proud that I've sold 15,000 in five years. 100,000 books in the first month. Let me read you the beginning uh, of, uh, of this. And he sets up an argument at the beginning of this book that he keeps returning to. This is, this is the argument he sets up. Hannah Smith is a very lucky woman. She's a law clerk at the Supreme Court. She's the best in the world. Last year, more than 42,000 people graduated from law school in the United States, and 37 of them were awarded Supreme Court clerkships. Here comes the big lie. Any one of the 42,000 who graduated from law school last year could have had Hannah's job. Look, that's just not true. There's some dude at, what's, what's, a really, what's the school you hate the most? Oh, KU. Okay, so there's some guy at KU Law School, right, who's barely skinning by. I mean, he's barely making a 2.0, right? And he barely graduates. And really, he's just not a real bright guy, right? He's at KU, right? So, so he's working as hard as he can, right? He's never going to be a clerk in the Supreme Court. Not on his best day, right? It's funny, I, I was using this, this illustration uh, one time in, in a group like this, and when it was over, some guy came up and says, Hannah Smith was a classmate of mine at Princeton. He said, not only was she the smartest person in any room she walked into, right? She worked twice as hard as anybody at the school. She was valedictorian. She graduated. She could have gone to any law school in the United States that she wanted to. I said, really? I said, where did she go? He said, you'll find this interesting. She went to Brigham Young. She was a Mormon. So she went to Brigham Young Law School. Brigham Young Law School had never had a graduate serve as a clerk on the Supreme Court ever. So, of course, she graduated top of her class at Brigham Young. And when she applied for the, uh, to be a clerk at the Supreme Court, she had hundreds, if not thousands of people with lots of money and lots of prestige pulling strings to help her get that job. So this whole illustration this guy's put up is completely bogus. Okay? Now, the problem is these two great lies have set your generation up for failure. And your generation has a word for it. It's called the quarter-life crisis, right? You know, talk to some of your friends or your brothers or sisters out in the, in the working world. They get out in the world, begin to work, and realize it's not what they thought it was going to be. They realize they're not going to be in the corner office in two years, right? In fact, they'll be lucky if they're if they've even had one raise in two years. And they get very discouraged. And what happens is they basically kind of withdraw from work, do 
come, do the least they can to get by, and they try to find significance and purpose in other things in their lives, in a relationship, uh, in a hobby, in travel, make a list, right? But the reality is we were made to work. The Bible tells us in Genesis 2.15, God put Adam in the garden to work it and to take care of it. Work is where we're supposed to find our great purpose, and we should get great satisfaction from that. But, you know, because of these two great lies, people have wandered away from that. Many believers as well. So, Tim Keller is a friend of mine. He's a pastor at uh, Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City. He writes this about success. He talks about how success has become one of the great idols of our culture. He says this, more than other idols, personal success and achievement lead to a sense that we ourselves are God, that our security and value rest in our own wisdom, strength, and performance. To be the best at what you do, to be at the top of the heap, means that no one is like you. You are supreme. Now, let me show you one of my heroes. This guy was the best in the world, right? He's a basketball coach. Uh, was coaching probably before most of you uh, were born. His name is John Wooden. He was at a school, uh, the initials of UCLA. He won nine national championships in basketball in 11 years, a feat that will never, ever probably be repeated. What a lot of people don't realize is he was a very committed Christian. And one time he was asked, what is your definition of success? Or how do you measure success? And here's what he said. He said, success is peace of mind, which is the direct result of the self-satisfaction and knowing that you did your best to become the best that you're capable of becoming. Okay, There were nights when his team lost, admittedly not very many, but there were some, when he was, he was perfectly okay because he knew they'd played up to their potential. And that night they just were beat by a better team. There were other nights when his church team blew the other team out by 20 points. He was furious with them. Why? Because they didn't play up to their potential. John Wooden has, has been... Um, has been uh, gone from us, I don't know, five years now, I guess. And I got to meet him one time, and I was so surprised, I was so tongue-tied, I couldn't think of anything to say. But if I was to meet him again, I'd ask him, where did he come up with that definition? And I think I know the answer. It's from a story in the Bible that most of us have heard of. In fact, it's probably one of the most popular stories in the Bible. It's called the Parable of the Talents. So I want to take a couple minutes and talk to you about the Parable of the Talents. I want to quickly give you some context. First of all, the very word talent, the way we use it today to mean natural gifts, right, uh, is not the way it's always been used. That, that understanding came from John Calvin's commentary on this passage. Before the Reformation, the word talent meant spiritual gifts given by God to help the church. And really, in the medieval church, it was only the, the priest that got these gifts. It was John Calvin who really related this to, to all of work and to everyone, that we're given gifts, abilities, talents, as we use that term today, that help us do our work. Now, this parable really uh, is part of something called the Olivet Discourse, and it's found in the book of Matthew, and it takes place in the last week of Jesus' ministry, probably on a Tuesday. Jesus has a big fight with the Pharisees. Jesus is teaching in the temple. 
They come out, the last time Jesus is ever going to be in the temple, they come out of the temple, uh, and, and they're, as they're walking out of the temple, this is a model of what, what the temple would look like in Jesus' day. Now, this is not the temple that was built by Solomon. This was built by um, Herod the Great. But it was still an incredible place, right? In fact, many archaeologists say that it was probably one of the top ten architectural buildings in the world at that time. So they're walking out of there, and, and, and the um, disciples are just going, man, this is such a killer cool place, right? This is just the best. And Jesus turns to them and says, he says, do you see all these things? And he points around to the building and says, Truly I tell you, not one stone will be left on another. Everyone will be torn down. And of course, this freaks out the, uh, the disciples because this is the center of Jewish worship. They cannot conceive of a time when the temple will be destroyed. And what Jesus is really talking about is something that's going to happen in another 40 years. The Romans, there's a, there's a rebellion. Uh, Rome sends a bunch of soldiers and says, you know, teach those guys a lesson. There's a siege around Jerusalem. They estimate that a million people lose their lives in the siege around Jerusalem in 70 AD. They finally come through the walls. They destroy the temple. Not a single stone is left on another stone. Now, here's an interesting thing. This is an aside, but something you don't hear very often. Where was the largest Christian church in 70 AD? Does anybody know? Jerusalem. Um, how many of those people died in, in, of these million people that died in this siege? You might know? Zero. Why? Because they knew of Jesus' prophecy. And when they saw the signs, they left Jerusalem before the armies got there, and not a single Christian perished in the siege of Jerusalem. In fact, there are towns up on the Golan Heights that date their start of their towns. They exist even today. Because it was started by Christians who left Jerusalem and went up there to be safe. Interesting story. So Jesus leaves the temple. He's staying with Martha and Mary and uh, his friends in Bethany. Bethany is over the hill, over that ridge. That ridge is the Mount of Olives. This is called the Olivet Discount because it's Jesus' dissertation on the Mount of Olives. So they get up there. They sit down. And they asked Jesus, what in the world were you talking about back there at the temple? Tell us what you mean, and tell us how all this is going to end. So for the next couple chapters in Matthew, there's this discussion by Jesus. If you were to outline it, this is the way it looks. We don't really have time to, to, to go into it. But I want you to look at this middle part, right? The part in yellow. He's telling them to be vigilant. And, and after he tells them to be vigilant, he gives them three parables. The parable of the faithful wise servant, the parable of the ten virgins, and the parable we want to talk about, the parable of talents, right? The first one he's telling to be watching. The second, the one about the ten virgins, is to be ready. And the last one that we want to look at is to be working. So what he's telling them is that while he's gone, God's people need to be doing three things. They need to be waiting for him, be watching, be ready, and be working. So with that kind of background, let's look at the parable. The parable we know well, it starts out, uh, for it would be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted them with his property. To one, he gave five talents. To another, two talents. To another, one talent. Each according to his own ability and then went away. Now, there's a short phrase in this description that I think is the key to understanding this parable and often we overlook it. 
And it's simply the phrase where he says, each according to his own ability. See, the master knew his servants. He knew that he could give one five, one two, one one. Now, if we did this today, you couldn't do this, right? I'm not a math major, but would we have to give what? Each one three point, you know, six fives talents or whatever, right? Because this would be really unfair just to give one guy one talent and this other guy got five talents. But that's not the way this parable works, and it's not the way God works, okay? Now, let me give you another piece of the puzzle. One day I was doing a Bible study of this, and I started thinking, you know, all my life I've heard this story. I've been a Christian and being in Sunday school when I was a kid, I always thought the poor guy that got one talent really got ripped off, right? First of all, he didn't get as much as the other guy. And what can you do with one crummy little coin? I mean, I've got this picture of the one coin, right? So I did the math to figure out what a talent's worth. You know what a talent is worth in today's dollars? Somewhere between a million and two and a half million dollars, depending on how you do the math, okay? Now, think about this for a second. The guy that one got one talent got over a million dollars and buried it in the backyard. No wonder the master was upset with him. Does that not change that whole description of what happens in this parable? But most of the sermons I've heard on this in church over the years, the emphasis on the one guy with one, par- with one talent, right? And yes, I admit, we don't want to be that guy. He gets in really big trouble. We don't want to be that guy. But I had very few people, very, heard very few sermons anyway, on the, on the other two guys. They're the guys we want to be like. Think about this for a second. One guy gets $5 million, goes out in the marketplace, and he makes $5 million more dollars. That would be a good trick if you did it today. We don't know how long he had to do it. Some scholars speculate probably six, six years maybe. That's the general consensus. So to go take $5 million, double it in today's market, that'd be pretty good, right? In their economy, that was, I mean, this guy was like a Steve Jobs, right? Like a Bill Gates. This guy is just like a genius businessman. Even the guy that took the $2 million and went out and made $2 million more million, that's not too bad, right? Now, here's the interesting part about the story, right? So, master comes back, the guy takes the five, got the five million, gives the master the $10 million back. And the master says, well done, my good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little, I'll make you faithful over much. Enter into the joy of the master. The guy comes and brings his two talents, his $2 million, and the $2 million he's made and gives them to the master. What does the master tell him? Exactly the same thing. Well done, my good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of the master. Wait a minute. What's wrong with this picture? Shouldn't we give more glory and honor to the guy, to the Bill Gates guy? To this, I mean, this other guy's a pretty good businessman, but when we're looking at the two of them, who should we honor the most, right? See, that's what our culture does. That's not what God does. And the problem is that's what gets us off track, right? Think about it this way. How hard did the guy have to work to take the five talents and turn it into ten talents? He had, to, he had to put 100% effort. He had to work as hard as he could to do that, I'm sure, right? How hard did the guy have to work that took the two talents and to make four talents? He had to work 100%. He had to work as hard as he could. And see, that's the key to understanding this story. God doesn't reward us on the end result. The culture does, right? 
But God doesn't. That's not the way God keeps score, if you will. And it leads us to understand the secret of understanding what biblical success is. Because biblical success is taking what God gives you, whether it's five talents or two talents or one talent, and working as hard as you can with it to produce the most that you can produce. And that's all he's going to hold you accountable for. Now see, he's going to hold you accountable for what he's given you. Look, this is not a story about salvation, about losing your salvation. That's not what this is about. This story is about doing what God's asked you to do. And like I said, we're going to be held accountable for what he's given us and what he expects us to give him in return. I'll be honest with you. I, uh, at one point in my business career, early on, I thought, you know, I am going to be the next, make a list, you know, uh, guy runs Chick-fil-A or, or, um, or the Hobby Lobby guy. I'm going to be the next one of those guys, right? And if I work really hard, I could be anything I want I can be. I could be the best in the world, right? I bought into all that. You know, they even, my kindergarten teacher told me that too, right? At some point in my career, I began to realize, you know, I'm a little bit behind schedule. And then really when I got honest with myself, I realized I'm never going to be one of those guys. See, the reality that came to me is those guys are five-talent guys. I'm a two-talent guy. And I'm never going to be a five. Should have been the most depressing day of my life. But I was actually studying this passage to do a Bible study on it. And I realized something incredible, right? That even though I'm a two-talent guy, if I take what God's given me and I work as hard as I can, not looking at what other people are doing, because see, what he's given me is different than he's given everyone in this room. Everyone in this room, you're completely different from everybody else. You need to take the opportunities, the gifts that God has given you. Go out and work as hard as you can. As a two-talent guy, if I go do that, when this is all said and done, by the way, when this is all said and done, we're going to have the biggest party you've ever seen. It's going to be the wedding feast of the Lamb. And it's going to be a banquet. It's going to be a party like you cannot even dream about. But see, I had it in my mind that when that happens, right, Mr. Chick-fil-A is going to be sitting down in the front. You know, Mr. Um, Hobby Lobby, he's going to be sitting down in the front because those, those seats are reserved for the five-talent guys. Hugh, Mr. Two-talent, I'm going to be back in the back somewhere, right? No, that's not how it works. You know, those two guys have been faithful with what God's given them. If I'm faithful with what he's given me, if I'm a two-talent guy, if I'm one, I'm going to sit right between them. I sent this book to a friend of mine who's an attorney in Florida. We grew up together, played football together. And he wrote me back after we read it, and some of this is in the book. And he said, he was blown away when he read that part. He says, I'm an attorney. He says, I've tried to be the best. And he said, I've been around guys. I've met guys that were so smart, so much, so much, they had so much more talent. I, he said, I really got discouraged because I thought I was a failure because I could never match up to, to what those guys were doing. We used to tell our daughters when they were growing up, there's always going to be somebody with more money and somebody that's better looking. You better get used to that idea. To do the best with what God's given you. And that's really what we're called to do. That is the secret of success. To go take what God's given you, do the best that you can possibly do with that. And if you can do that, you'll be rewarded. It's interesting, one of my favorite scenes in, in one of my favorite movies 
is uh, Gladiator. And there's a great scene at the beginning when he's riding up and down the horse, you know, and the, and the dog, they're getting ready to attack the German horde, you know. always have a little bit of problem with that scene because my ancestors were part of the German horde that was about to get slaughtered. But nevertheless, it's a great scene. And, and he's rallying the troops and he says, you know, what we do today lasts for eternity. It's not true about him, but it is true about you. What you do today is going to carry over to the new heaven and the new earth. What you do today in the work you do lasts for eternity. You don't want to be the guy with one talent, right? Let me give you the best shot at what the biblical meaning of success is. Success is faithfully using all that God has given us for the furtherance of his kingdom here on this earth. This work should bring us both joy and peace of mind, knowing we've done our best through the power of Christ working through us to accomplish what he has called us to do, to make a difference in the world in which we live. One last comment. Those of us who have given their lives to Jesus Christ, we work at the pleasure of the Lord God Almighty, and our work's to be driven by our love of the Master, Our only desire should be to hear him say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the master. Thank you. I lost the fuzzy. Huh? I don't know what happened to it. I took it off my, it just disappeared. Okay, I'm ready. All right. So uh, here's a question. Why the economics and faith work in yeah. economics? How Good question. Play into shalom? Good question. <clears throat> it partly has to do with the whole idea of the interdependency of um, the creation and how that none of us can go reweave shalom by ourselves. You can't go be a good steward by yourself. You can't... Um, you can't really do any of these things by yourself. You are made to work in community. You're made to flourish in community. And that's kind of one of the major themes in economics. I have a, a PhD in economics named Ed Bradley who works for us at the Institute. And she uses the example all the time of, remember the story about, um, what is the movie, Castaway with Tom Hanks? Remember that movie? So here's Cat, you know, Tom Hanks. He's shipwrecked on this island. Um, beautiful place. Plenty of water, plenty of food. I mean, this is where you and I would going to go for vacation, right? But yet, does he flourish there? No, he does not. Why? Because he's by himself, right? Um, none of us, if we were dropped on a desert island, would do any better. We were made, God made us to work together. There's something economists called comparative advantage. And what that means is each one of us is given special gifts that are different. We're not all the same. And God made it that way, so we would have to come together and work together. That is one of the core pieces of economics. So let me give you another uh, illustration. I was in a um, Missoula, Montana, and did a conference a number of years ago. A beautiful place. I mean, it's, it's, it's just absolutely, it's river runs through it, that movie. That's where that's from. Um, spoke on a Friday night, Saturday, preached at this church on Sunday. guy comes up with the afterwards and says, he says, I was at your conference, heard what you said. He said, just changed my mind incredibly. He said, you have to understand. He said, I'm 55 years old. I wash dishes for a living. 
He said, I became a Christian about 10 years ago. And I thought the only thing I could do at work is occasionally share my faith with somebody. He says, but you need to understand, I'm back in the back part of the kitchen where it's hot and steamy. No one comes back there unless they absolutely have to. He said, but what you're telling me is that every dish I wash, if I do it to the glory of God, and somehow in ways I don't completely understand, that what I do connects with something else someone else does, that connects with something someone else. This is economics, by the way, right? And the result is that this little restaurant we work at brings flourishing to our community. Tears are running down his face, and he says, that makes all the difference. So. All right, next question. What can you do when your job has rules and regulations preventing you from talking about your faith? Well, and that is an interesting question because, you know, should you take your employer's time and waste it by, by sharing your faith? I mean, you're there, you're being paid to do a job, right? I'm telling you, the best thing that you can do at work is work hard, do an excellent job at everything you do, and people will come and ask you about your faith. See, we, we don't think that way. You know, we don't need any sorry Christians sharing their faith anymore. You know, the guy that slacks off, that steals the paper and takes it home. I mean, you need to lead a life of excellence at work. You know, this is the story of the parable of talents, right? You've got to be the best. You start doing that, and trust me, people will start coming and talking to you. They will see from example that you're different. And they'll want to know why are you different than everybody else? Why are you still here working when the boss went home early and everybody else is slipping out early, right? Because you don't work for that boss. You work for another boss that's more important, right? Good question. All right, next one. How important do you think it is for Christians to rise to positions of influence in their fields? Yeah, I think this is critically important. And, and, and I, would, I would talk to all of you about this because there are a lot of smart kids, you know, smart guys, smart women in this room. Um, there's some five-talent people in this room, right? And I believe that we need to do as good as we possibly can, right? We need to be doing better than everybody else. If you have the capability to get a Ph.D., you need to be going and getting one, right? Um, we need people in politics, that understand this, all this stuff about flourishing, that that's why government exists, to help people flourish, right? We need people in higher ed that get this stuff. We need people in almost every sector in business, in higher ed, every sector, communication, um, that get this and rise to a position where they can influence more people, right? And... You want to be the guy at the head of the company that drives your company to have a triple bottom line, not just be about making money, but be about developing capital, which you need, right, money, about developing spiritual capital, about building even uh, social capital. I mean, we need companies. We need people in business desperately that get this and understand that they need to drive their companies to a triple bottom line. And that they're doing things that bring glory to God, serve the common good, and further God's kingdom. Whether uh, where are you? So that's really, really important. So while you're here in a, and have an opportunity to get an education, get as much as you can. Get as much as you can afford. I know it's expensive. Uh, next question. The next question is this. Uh, how do you know if you're a one, two, or five talent person? 
right? And if you're settling slash a late bloomer or reaching too far. Yeah, yeah. Well, I can, I can talk about being a late bloomer. I'm a late bloomer. I have screwed up so many different things. It's just not even imaginable. And the great thing is God always gives you a second chance, right? Uh, he, you know, he gives you do-overs. And that's uh, because he's a gracious God, and he loves you. He wants to see you do well. He wants to see flourishing take place in your life, right? So um, read me the question again. I started thinking about all the bad things I've done. I forgot, uh, I forgot what the question was. How do you know if you're a yeah. one, two, or okay. five-talent person? So, so that part is pretty easy, right? Because that's just very arbitrary. It, it, it's, it's written like that for the, for the story, right? The reality is that there's a spectrum, and everybody's on that spectrum somewhere, right? And like I said, there's always going to be so much better you, so much not as good as you. And that's okay, because you're not measuring yourself against them. And what was the last part? Uh, how do you know if you're settling or a late bloomer yeah, yeah. or reaching too far? Yeah. Um, I don't think you can reach too far, to be quite honest with you, right? You want to do as good as you possibly can do. Now, you can overreach and do things that you don't have any business doing or that are beyond your capability, and you don't want to do that. But you want to do things to push yourself as far as you can, right? Um, I think that's, that's very important. I mean, Paul says, I run the race, right, to win, right? You, you know, it, 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 we, don't, we want to do the best we can. You want to try everything. Some things you're going to do well, some things you're not. And you don't do well, well, you know, some days, you know, you get the bear. Someday the bear gets you. That's an old saying in hunting, right? Although the people that the bear get don't really say that very much. Um, but it's, it's a, there is a sense that if you do the best that you can do, everything's going to work out. One of the questions we talked about at our table, about the sovereignty of God. God is sovereign, right? He's working out everything the way he planned. He's got a plan for your life, and you're to plug into that plan and do the best you can. And if you do that, it'll all work out. Sometimes it doesn't seem like it would but it will. The reality is, you know, you do the best you can, and um, if everything works out, God gets the glory, and things don't work out, it's your fault, but that's the way it works, you know? There's <laughs> not too much you can do about it. Other questions? Yeah, so you talked about contentment. Uh, what place does competitiveness have in business? Yes. That's a really good question, because I hear people all the time say, oh, you know, you shouldn't be so competitive, you shouldn't. God has given some of us the gift of competitiveness. I have it, right? I mean, you can look at my nose. My nose has been broken numerous times. I guarantee you I broke more noses playing football than people broke my nose, right? Um, because I was told if you hit somebody hard enough, it won't hurt. That's not true, by the way. Um, I think God has made some of us to be competitive, some of us not. My wife's not competitive. She won't play card games with me. She won't play board games with me. She learned early on not to do that, right? But I have friends that we, we just go at it, you know, and, and because that's who God's made us. And we shouldn't be ashamed about that, right? But we shouldn't use that as a, as a reason to sin either, right? So, so you have to be real careful to, to make sure that, that you're using your competitive uh, gift in a way that's positive, right? In a way that's um, uh, uplifting to people and not tearing other people down. So just like any other gift that you have, you can use it to do good or you can use it to do bad. And it gets back to your motives and why you're doing it. And so, so you have to be careful. I don't think there's anything bad at all about being competitive. 
I think it's, what, it's a gift that God's given some of us. Um, and, and other people don't have it. And, and that's okay, right? There's nothing wrong with that. Yeah, good question. All right, here's another one. Uh, this is based on something you actually said. You said people in a quarter-life crisis withdraw from work to find significance in something else. Is that all bad? Can you expound on your comment? Yeah. Well, f- first, it's a gross generalization, right? I mean, I, it, it is that way. Although, I'll be honest with you, there's a whole um, market for material about how to manage millennials because people have such a difficult time managing them, particularly people from my generation pull their hair out because they just don't understand how to motivate uh, people your age and your older brothers and sisters. Um, so, so there is this sense, I think, that, you know, your life's not all about work, right? Remember I said there's these four buckets, right? There's your call to work, your call to family, your call to church, and your call to vocation. And part of leading a balanced life is understanding the interplay between those, right? I've seen people that have built their companies on the back of their families. In other words, they've ignored their families so they could be successful at work. That's not godly. That's not something God wants you to do, right? Let me give you an example. I was telling someone about this earlier. Uh, I have a friend out in Silicon Valley, and he has an IT company and a bunch of, you know, 20-somethings working for him. And he has a rule, right? And his rule is if I catch you in the office after 6 o'clock, you're fired. If you, if you send me an email after 6 o'clock, you're fired. If you call me after 6 o'clock to tell me anything other than the bur- building's burning down, you're fired. Okay? Now, he goes on to say, after 8 o'clock at night, right, if you want to get back on and do a little work, that's okay. But I don't want to hear anything from you. I don't want to see you working from 6 to 8. Why does he say that? Because, see, he's trying to build into the culture of his organization the importance of family. He wants them at home with their kids, putting their kids to bed, you know, ha- having dinner with their wives, right? Because he understands that's very important. Now, and he also realizes that, yeah, that his employees are going to spend the majority of their time at work, but he wants to make sure that they're leading balanced lives. So there is a sense that, that you really have to have a balanced life. What I was talking about with, with uh, a certain group, uh, uh, in the workforce is that they get so, um, what's the word I'm looking for? They get so, um, they find so little meaning in their work. They're so disappointed in the place that they are after two or three years that they quit trying, right? That they, they, they don't really try hard. They're not, they're not working with excellence. That's what I'm talking about. And then they, they kind of unplug and go look for significance in other places. Now, you certainly can find significance in, in a relationship. You certainly can find significance in a hobby, right? But you'll never find the true significance and meaning that you were made to do in anything other than work because we were made to work. That's one of the things. Listen, I don't believe in retirement. And that may come as a shock. I don't believe it's a biblical principle. I grew up in Florida. I would see people retire and come down to play golf all, the, all day long, and they died, right? I mean, we're not made just, I mean, rec- I love to play golf, right? I, I, recreation is important. But that's not what we were made to do. You know, and I believe, I say I don't believe in retirement. You know, maybe if you make enough money that you don't have to work for a living anymore and you're independently wealthy, that's great. You can go do other things and not have to take a salary. But, you, you know, I don't believe God's going to call you just to go, go play golf all day long, right? Or, what, you know, make a list of whatever else you want to do. 
because God made us to work. And when we understand the work the right way, not only is it fun, but it's incredibly satisfying. And that's the piece we've got to get to. That's the piece we have to learn. And everyone has to learn that on your own, and you have to struggle with that. And, and the problem is, sometimes, no matter how good your job is, I mean, think about my job. I created my job. You know, I do whatever I want to. There's still things I have to do I hate, right? And it's hard, and things don't work out like that. Why? Because we live in a fallen world. There's a curse on our work. You read that in Genesis 3.15. It's always going to be hard. It's always going to be difficult. We're always going to struggle against the curse, no matter what, until the end of this age, and we move into the next age. And there, there will be no sin. Think about the best 30 seconds of any job you've ever been in. Everything was right. It was clicking. You were on. It was just perfect, right, for that 30 seconds. When we get to the new heaven and earth, the work that we'll have will be better than that 30 seconds every day, every hour, every week, every year for eternity. All right. One uh, last question. What do you do if you're in a situation with a bad boss? Yeah, bad boss question. I get this all the time. Um, you know, and some people say, I've been a bad boss. I, I hope that's not true, but um, there's not a lot you can do, right? I mean, obviously, you can go find another job. And sometimes, believe it or not, that's the best situation. I've seen a lot of people try to say, okay, I'm going to hang in here. I'm going to influence this guy. I'm going to get him to do the right thing. Good luck, you know. Uh, the beautiful thing in our country is that you're free to go work and do anything you want. You don't have to work. You're not indentured to some guy that you have to stay there, right? And there are a lot of men out there that are bosses, and, and some women, but not as many, that are terribly abusive, uh, even, you know, uh, to, to extremes, right? And I'm telling you, if you run into one of those situations, um, you know, you got to do the best you can, and then at some point, you, if it's not getting any better, you just need to need to throw in the towel and find something else. And, and that's not a bad thing to do, right? Um, because there are a lot of times, particularly with a boss, you're not, gonna, you're not really ever going to impact them, I can tell you that. And part of the problem is we think we can, right? And, and even as an employee, employer, I, I've thought that before. I had a guy I hired one time, and everybody told me, God, this is a great guy, you know, you love him, and this guy would dress up like Santa Claus and go work with his clients. But the one thing I heard about him is he lied, right? And I thought to myself, okay, I, I can break him of that, right? A year later, I fired him. I, I couldn't break him. He would lie when he didn't even need to. And so finally, I just had to fire him. And, uh, I, you know, I brought him to my office. I said, why do you lie all the time? He goes, you know, I don't know. It just, it just comes over me. I just, I just do it. I don't want to do it. And he would lie sometimes when he didn't need to, Right? But, you know, at, at, at one point in time, I realized I'm not going to fix this guy. So the best thing for me is to, to, to send him on to the next guy, let the next guy fix him, right? Uh, but I, I think the bad boss thing is like that, right? I mean, you, you have to decide at some point it's, it's better just to, to cut loose and go on. And, uh, and that's difficult. That's probably one of the most difficult things in work is when you have a boss that, that is bad, that you don't respect, and unfortunately, there are far too many of those out there. And you need to remember that when you become the boss, you don't want to be that guy or that woman, right? Because a lot of you are eventually going to become the boss.